we actually went out for a few days, my husband and son and I, and we were on set, which was incredibly surreal, right? To, to have these scenes that you wrote that are kind of based on your real life, and then to have to watch them act it out in front of you. It, it, was, it was a very intense experience. Hi everyone, welcome to Sad Me of the Past, where we invite an established writer to revisit a piece they wrote in their tender years. That piece may fill them with affection, regret, nostalgia, embarrassment, relief, delight, anguish, all of the above, or something else entirely. Every infant must take those early, brave, awkward steps when learning to walk. We writers must make our own early, brave, awkward efforts as we set out to master our craft. So let's travel back to that ancient time when we were bursting with hubris or scared to death, drunk with language or paralyzed by it, determined to become a writer or terrified that we didn't have the stuff. I'll show them, we thought. But what did we show, really, and to whom? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sad Me of the Past. I'm Stephen Lovely, director of the Iowa Young Writers Studio. And I'm Lauren Haldeman, editor of the Writing University website. I'm Danny Kalachi, director of the Maggot Center for Writing at the University of Iowa. We are so excited to have Rachel Yoder on the podcast today. Rachel Yoder is the author of Night Bitch, her debut novel. Selected as an Indie Next pick, Night Bitch has gone on to be named a Best Book of the Year by Esquire and Vulture and recognized as a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction, a finalist for the VCU Cabell First Novelist Prize, and shortlisted for the McKitterick Prize. Publishers Weekly called Night Bitch an electric work by an ingenious new voice, and we couldn't agree more. A film adaptation directed by Marielle Heller and starring Amy Adams, no big deal, <laughs> released later this year. To date, Night Bitch has been translated into 13 languages. Rachel is a graduate of the Iowa Nonfiction Writing Program and also holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Arizona. With Mark Polanzek, she is the founding editor of Draft, the Journal of Process. Recent essays and stories have appeared in Harper's, The Paris Review, and Guernica. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi. Oh. Welcome, Rachel. I love being in a room with three of my favorite people. This is why we made the podcast, is to get you in this room. <laughs> in general, Lauren and I were talking one day about uh, how we can have more friends. Oh, yeah. We were like, let's start with We really want to up our friend count. Yeah, for sure. Thought, why don't we start with our current friends. <laughs> right. And then we can hang out with our friends. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant idea. And if there's three of us that all, all, all of our uh, fractions of cool add up to super cool. <laughs> so Right, like my 3%, your 78%. I guess Dan yeah. is a higher percentage of cool than that. My IQ, <laughs> We're back to the IQ will carry, I just carry you all on my back. We don't want to talk about your IQ. Should we say what your numerical IQ is? No, let's not. Okay. Because From the age of seven? There are people out there that... They'll judge you. Oh, no, no, no. They'll want some of, they'll want what I've got. And I don't have a lot to give anymore. And I'm not sure, just as like a colleague, I'm not sure we want that floating out there because other universities, uh, other, yeah. other. They'll poach her. Yeah. And other businesses will reach out and say, wait, do you have someone with X IQ that <laughs> runs a podcast? I also really like, I do try to project an assumption of 
mediocrity because mm. that goes really well ha hand in hand with my laziness. I like it that you don't project like full on 138. <laughs> oh, oh no, but like it's, it's called modesty. There's oh a certain my modesty. God. But Stephen, you, you gave away the number. Oh, shoot. <laughs> All right, Rachel. Yes. This is what we do on the podcast. I love it. So we, the idea is basically we're taking these writers who have made it, you know? <laughs> they are like set and we want to see some, their bad stuff. We want to see early writing. We want to see elementary school, not even high school. I mean, I want to see even, want to workshop it. I don't know about these two. I want to cruelly go at it as though we're at a table in the die house. But that's intense. I know, but maybe we won't do that. I feel like for one thing we want to make clear is, I mean, I feel like I'm not looking for bad stuff. I'm looking for stuff that's just just from the early times, mm. you know? Yes, no, and, Stephen uh, and I are different. Yeah, but I mean, for, I think the first <laughs> thing we wanna do is um, is what we're, we've been asking our guests is, what what's your connection to Iowa City? And, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about your connection. Sure, um, well, I have now lived here for almost 15 years. We were talking about time earlier. Time passes, it sure does. I came here to be in the nonfiction writing program and soon thereafter met the man who would become my husband, the boy who would become my husband. Um, yeah, and so I've made my life here uh, and it's really turned into the best community I, I could imagine, right? Like it's a wonderful place to be a writer, a place to live. Um, you feel really embraced as a writer. You feel like it's important. There's a lot of stimulation for you as a writer with people coming through. Um, and I've held various positions. I've worked for Danny. I've worked for Steven. Have I worked for you, Lauren? No. <laughs> I have not yet worked for Lauren. That's coming well, up. Right now I'm working for yes. you. So this is this is my place. So quick follow-up, Lauren, or uh, Rachel is your name. <laughs> uh, so Steven's asking about Iowa City. You're not from Iowa. No. You came here for grad school. Yeah. What was your sort of knowledge of Iowa City before you got here? And what was that, if, in whatever way you can remember, what was it like those first couple days, months mm. when you were here? Because you've talked about community. It's a great place to be a writer. Um, and I'm just curious how you found it uh, relating to sort of what you thought about this place before you arrived. Mm, yeah. So I had visited uh, the year before I enrolled here. I had a friend who was in the poetry workshop, and I came for the Nonfiction Now conference. So, and I actually met Lauren then, though we only figured this out many years later. Yeah, so it, it was really exciting when I came for that. Like, the conference had all these famous writers, and um, it just seemed like the students were all really excited to be here, excited about what was happening. Like it was this really um, amazing time in their lives. So when I came, I remember before classes even started, I lived in the living room of a house. I moved into <laughs> this house full of students, right? My room was the living room. I could hear everything that went on in the kitchen and you know, the front room. And I remember I went and got Jesus' son. And I'm like, and I read that book. And I was like, holy shit. Like, this is where I am. 
And I just remember feeling like so much possibility. And I remember like lying in bed and those huge rainstorms would come through and I'd wake up in the middle of the night to the thunder and the lightning. And it just felt like this monumental time. And I, I loved being a grad student here. Uh, it, that, that is where I consider myself forged as a writer. I, I had gone to U of A before. I was 25. I knew nothing about writing. I had taken one creative writing class before I went um, to grad school. So when I was here, um, the nonfiction program really was like, what sort of artist are you going to be? Like, mm -hmm. what are you interested in? You can make anything. What do you want to make? And I found that really provocative and really inspiring. Yeah. And so, Rachel, were you, when you came here to, to do the nonfiction program, were you still writing fiction? Like, had, were you making a conscious transition from, like, nonfiction writing to, or fiction writing to nonfiction writing? Or were you just kind of broadening... Like, what was your sort of vision of your writing at that point? Yeah. And what you wanted it to become? Well, I always wrote very auto-fictional stuff and would get, you know, grief for that um, from people. And then I had this um, essay that got published in the Modern Love section of the New York Times. And I thought, oh, hey, if you write nonfiction, you can get it published places. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And it was, and it was already, you know, like very adjacent to the work I was doing in fiction. Um, so I thought, okay, well, the only way I can get a second MFA is if it's from Iowa, and if it's fully funded, I'm not going to send applications to any other place. Like this is the only way I can indulge this sort of fantasy. And so I sent one application to Iowa, and I got in. I, d I don't know how, but um, so I came here, and I think. Yeah, I was like, okay, this is going to be the time when I write about being Mennonite. Because everyone had always said, well, you need to write about being Mennonite. And I just like wrote about failed relationships. And they're like, where's the Mennonite stuff? <laughs> we are like, why are you stuff. writing about boys? It's like, that is top of mind right now. Um, boys are great. They really are. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to write about being Mennonite. I, did, I couldn't do it. It just... That was going to be my thesis. Nope. I wrote about falling in love with Seth, my husband. Like, that was my thesis. Um, so that was failed. But I think I, like, what I got here was not something I could have foreseen or expected. Um, I think I just, I wasn't like, I want to be an essayist. I thought, I want to expand my repertoire. I want to have more tools for doing what I do. Yeah. Awesome. So, I mean, as we sit here, there's a pile of handwritten <laughs> paper. Looks like you did that one on an electric typewriter? It wasn't even electric. It wasn't electric. It was just a manual typewriter I could not even lift That's off some heavy-duty stuff right yeah. there. Rachel has brought a plethora of what I think are probably the jewels of your early writing, at least the stuff that you were able to find. One thing I want, and it, we'll put a We'll put a picture on the website, but Rachel's brought a book called Night Animals <laughs> that is hand-drawn. And um, and how old were you when you wrote Night Animals? I was in the third grade, third so I was grade. eight. Wow. And we made these for the second graders to go read to them. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And I would just like to note, 
<laughs> it's an illustrated book called Night Animals. Danny pointed out that it looks, the cover looks very similar to another book I wrote called Night Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's almost, ex I I, it's very similar. Same font. Are you conning us with same this? Same like gesture. There's no meat on it though. There's no, no meat. meat. There's yeah. this gesture of like, so, like this moving. Or it, something's come, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. This and then feels too good to be true. It's creepy. That's yeah, we'll have um, to talk about that. I would like to note on the back, English, my grade in, so there are three grades here, English, writing, and reading, mm -hmm. puzzling, Puzzle. English, A+, plus. Dang. writing, A, Ooh. Yikes. reading, A+. Plus. Ooh, so. Oh, so maybe when I read it out loud, that's what she was doing. She said, excellent story. You developed the plot nicely, and I can tell you spent a lot of time on it. Thanks, Miss Levengood. Yeah, yeah. But, but Miss Levengood also seems to suggest that you have, and this is a great teacher. She can say the writing, though, you got a little room to improve. Yeah. I'm the weakest at writing. I'm, yeah. I'm surprised you, you didn't let that discourage you and just give up. Yeah. <laughs> have you contacted her since then? I haven't. I need to have a Is talk she mentioned her. in your credits? No. Do you think she's still among the living? Like. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Oh, wow. She's probably still. She would be so proud of you. Oh, yeah. Do you yeah. think she knows about you? I don't know. You got to get on that her phone. An email, yeah. Yeah. I? So yeah, but I'm not going to read that because it's kind of boring. It's about animal um, stuffed animals coming to life at night, and it ends with a bag of gum gumdrops. It ends ends with candy. And I I, I want to note too that you're so you have a lot of sort of notebook paper here. Some of it has writing on it, handwriting, very, and then some of it is typed, like you were typing on note paper. <laughs> so I love that. Uh, it's you were using this notebook paper in all kinds of different ways. It just looks like you were a writer. Yeah, yeah, I had work to do. We, my dad had this typewriter. It was, it was like an 80s typewriter, maybe a 70s typewriter. It was huge. I couldn't lift it, and I loved it. I knew how to fix the, fix the ribbon if it got off. I have whiteout on here. I whited out some stuff. And, and typed over it. So I, I just loved the actual like physical experience of typing. Yeah. And well, you, did, you did you inhabit the idea that you were a writer? I, lo I love finding out about, I mean, what we do as children, mm -hmm. part of the way is we're using our imagination, but like that Kurt Vonnegut quote, you have to be careful what you pretend to be. Mm. Did you feel when you were writing this, like, see, you know, you were serious about it? I, I did not feel I was a writer. Oh. Being a writer seemed like a preposterous okay. idea to me because how could you possibly support yourself and make money? Like, I was going to be a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say you had work to do, like, what does that mean? Does that mean that, like, this was stuff that you was important? Like, I, yes. Yeah. And I think, of, I mean, I wrote this around the same age my son is now, around 9, 8, 9, 10, and let me tell you, that child has work to do. Mm -hmm. He has an agenda. And if we take time away from him, he's like, I have more things. I have things I want to do mm -hmm. in my head that need to get out. And I can, um, I think I can identify with that. Like, there's some stuff I need to get done, and then we can move on to playing outside or whatever. Right. Uh, do you want to read one of these? Yeah, maybe we should. Maybe we should talk about which which one you'd like to read, and then maybe we can just sort of set the stage for you know how old you were when you wrote it, where you might have been. I mean, I want to hear both, so maybe yeah, we'll we do read. Yeah, we want to hear things soon, though. Yes. Okay. So I don't even know if I'm going to read this typed one because it its themes are similar to another one. Um, 
I think the only, we'll, we'll get to what's notable about it, but I think I'm going to start with this one called How I Achieved Glory, which is a hilarious title. Nice. Perfect. I remember writing this in the fifth grade, so I must have been about 10. So, so just before you read it, can you tell us, like, fifth grade, where are you, are, are we in northeastern Ohio now? Fifth like, grade, we are in Coshocton, Ohio, okay. which is App- Appalachia. Okay. Um, I'm at a public school. Uh, yeah, very rural. Okay. Um, fifth grade was like, it was the book it year. Do you guys remember book it? Right. So we, so we read books so we could earn pan pizzas from Pizza Hut and we had that little button. Yes. No way. So fifth grade was a lot. It was just books. That's when like books became everything to me. It was like when I read A Wrinkle in Time and just took off as a reader and a writer our teacher had a lot, we had a lot of free reading time that year. And my friend, my best friend, Nikki, said it was because our teacher was hungover a lot. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. Um, yeah, it was, that was a great year. It was also the year that they, there was this contest to name the new spaceship. Whoa. So the, ch- I think it wasn't, the, it wasn't the Challenger. That was second grade. There was another mission going in and you could send in your names for I remember sending in a name. What was it? Oh gosh, I forget. I forget what it was. Did it win? Absolutely not. Mm. I think it was one of it was one of the names of Christopher Columbus's ships. Oh. Mm. Hey, you know, I mean you're going for historical. Yeah. It was yeah. the nineties. Smart move. It was yeah. I really hope that the end of this story is that you you win the naming. <laughs> of, of, and get of, to go into space. And well no, and that's how you achieve your glory. Oh, like man. That's, yeah. That's getting us back to the story. That would have been a good plot. All right, let's so hear it. Good, so, you're good at plot. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but I was really obsessed with space travel. I mean, this was like during this the space travel era, right? I wanted to be an astronaut. Okay, how I achieved glory. I, have so, I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. Okay. Okay, kids, I have a creative story for you to write. The title is How I Achieved Glory. Expand from that topic. Oh, Mrs. Baxter, one of my students calls. Yes, I answer. Why don't you write a story too? The student asks. Well, I don't know. I guess I could, I say. I go back to my desk and think. Now, what could I write about? Well, of course I knew. The story that follows is what I wrote. So already there's a framing, meta. Right. I love the upstart student who's like, why don't you write one to the teacher? That was was me. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Rachel J. Baxter, formerly Rachel J. Yoder. Um, So this whole thing started out with a fantasy idea. Oh, I'd say when I was 10, 11, 10 or 11 about becoming an astronaut. Oh, I knew it was far fetched. She edited it, but I'm not accepting her edit. Okay. <laughs> she wrote, oh, I knew it was a far-fetched idea. I can no. just say it was far-fetched. But I held on to this dream all the way through my life. Who would have dreamt of little Fresno, Ohio producing an astronaut? Well, some people must have dreamed because I did become an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> all, all through college... I drowned myself in astronomic courses. Yeah. And As thing, one does. And things to do with that subject. That subject. 
I went through six grueling years of college, and then it was on to NASA to see if any jobs were open <laughs> just like that. There was one opening, but two people wanted it. Myself and some guy from Harvard. <laughs> oh, man. Who was I? Who was this monster of a child? <laughs> some guy. I gave them my resume, and for four long months, I waited. Just when I was about to give up hope, a letter came from NASA. I opened it with shaky hands. The first words read, Dear Mrs. Baxter, congratulations. Those four words made me flip. I couldn't believe it. I shouted for joy and hugged my husband about a million times. After that, I called my parents and sister and brother. Then I called my two best friends. I was as happy as a bear in a honey factory. <laughs> <laughs> After all this, I sat down and read the rest of the letter. I would have to move to Florida to begin training, and only next month, I called everyone again and told them not, the not-so-good news. We started making arrangements, and before we knew it, we were in Florida. I started my training a week after we moved in. The next mission was only 10 months away. At first, it was tough because I have a weak stomach, and, I've, and, I, and we had to go in this thing that turns every which way. I didn't know the name. Every which way. I was like... I got motion sick and I had to go in a hibbly jibbly. <laughs> but after a while, I got used to everything. My husband really supported me a lot, and the people I worked with were great. Finally, it was time to get fitted for our suits, quote unquote. <laughs> Finally, it was, quote unquote, the day. I kissed my husband goodbye and boarded the ship. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, blast off. In all caps, in cursive. Um, we were off. That was, <laughs> that was sure a jolt. After, <laughs> after a while, I started floating around. It was really neat. I just can't describe it. We had to eat lots of dehydrated foods, and we strapped in our beds. Our mission only lasted five days, and we were soon down to earth. I felt about three times my weight on re-entry, which is totally normal. After about an hour, we came out of the ship. I was so glad to see my husband. The trip had been safe, and as some people would say, mission accomplished. <laughs> my glory had come and is still with me today. The end. Oh wow, amazing. There's just so much to unpack here. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, I want, this is what stuck out to me the most, is how focused you were on the mundane. Like, half that story is getting the letter, applying for a job, finding a job. I mean, we get maybe a paragraph or two of being an astronaut. There's nothing about being in space. <laughs> most You're just floating a little bit. And I get to eat dehydrated food. Yeah, yeah, but most of it's like, yeah, just sort of the mundanity of, you know, a job search and qualifications and then calling all your friends. And that, I don't mean to 
connect it back to Night Bitch. But it's totally connected. There's there's something haunting. It's like you. I love it when writers can do just the daily activities. Mm. You know, and Night Bitch is full of that, but it's but it's building on itself. You know what I mean? And I, it's the same sort of thing you've got going on there. It's just like this idea of like the small things that we do that are around these like bigger events. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's incredible, right? I was trying to imagine my way to something that felt utterly impossible. Like there's no way I can be an astronaut, but maybe if I think it through and think of all the discrete steps yeah. to get me there, then, I mean, I think, I just think that's how I've gotten through life. Like your imagination is so powerful. And if you can't imagine a way to be in the world, then you're probably not going to be that way. But if, but if you have the capability of like seeing it and saying it, then maybe you'll get there. That's one of the things that really struck me yeah. is because, I mean, for, for the first thing that impressed me is, you know, the, there's so much clarity in the writing and it's so sort of methodical and clear and the narrative is so nice. I'm always comparing everything to what I was writing at that age. But like, <laughs> yeah. it's just so, it's a, such a good story and it's so clear and it just, you know, goes from beginning to end. But, but I read it as like, exactly, like I felt that you were imagining your way forward, not even necessarily as an astronaut. I mean, maybe you were imagining being an astronaut, but I mean, it, it felt, I felt like sort of anything could stand in and you were sort of imagining your way through all the steps of like trying to get the thing, waiting, you know, then getting the thing, then sharing it with everyone, then maybe there's a big adjustment. And then I love the way you, you know there's supposed to be a husband and he's, and he's, <laughs> he just and he's supposed to support you. Right. Like that's, you wanted that in there. And then, you know, there's going to be some big sort of event or something exciting and big happens. And I almost felt like that could, uh, that could be sort of taken as a template for sort of any progression, writing, you know, neurosurgery, yeah. <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. You know? and that, that was really fun, I think, about the piece is just seeing you. It didn't seem like you were not able to imagine it. It really did seem, from hearing the piece, that you really were able to imagine it. And maybe that's either the result of your writing it or an illusion or whatever. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was, that's what was so exciting about it. And I love the way the vernacular came in once in a while, too. Like, it was very sort of, there was a voice, but then once in a while, the voice of, like, I forget exactly where. Like a 10-year-old. <laughs> I flipped or something. Yeah, like yeah, just, yeah, that yeah. voice just comes popping in. And you're every like, oh, which yeah. way. How the I think the machine turned every which it way. It sure did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, sure and, and Rachel, something else, I, I was just making notes. I mean, as every time we've done this podcast, I'm so impressed with the intelligence of our writers at this age. Oh, God. Like, yeah. just your knowledge. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you said, like, applying for a job, resume, waiting. I like that you were like, you knew it was, a lot. Yeah, yeah, it was me and one other person from Harvard. <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't think it, at that age, for myself, even in my creative work, I had no idea how the world worked. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm curious, how, do you, were you always someone who sort of thought about, I mean, you mentioned before, you weren't thinking about being a writer because it wasn't going to sustain you financially. I mean, it seems like something at a young age not everyone is thinking about. No. And so to think about applying for jobs, and as we brought up before, husband and sort of like, <laughs> did you have this ideal life? Were you, did you grow up in a situation where you sort of thought that there was this pressure to do a certain thing? Well, 
this story is coming soon after my brother went to college. He's you know nine years older than I am, and he went to MIT um, on a full scholarship, and that was a huge detail, oh, a yeah. huge like experience within our family, a Mennonite family who, you know, I was getting like free lunches at school. Um, so we didn't have a lot of money. And so the world out there, like the word of world of academia, the world of just like mainstream culture felt very far away, very mysterious. And I very much wanted to be part of it. And so I think at this age, I'm already thinking, okay, I know the colleges smart people go to. And I know I want to be out. I know I want to be out there with the smart people. That's what I'm supposed to want. So how am I going to get there with limited resources? I think I was probably thinking that in fifth grade. And it was like, wild. I'm going to have to be really good at everything. I'm going to have to think every step through because I don't like my parents are going to help me to a certain extent, but after a certain point, they can't help me at all. And so I'm going to have to figure this out. And I, I think it's also so interesting. You know, the crux of Night Bitch is this, it's really the marriage and a husband husband. who is not supportive and not present. And this story is so deliberate at saying I had a husband and he completely supported me. Like that seems like such an essential element to make it go. How did you you know? All we know of him is that How did you know that that was supposed to be true? Like, did you take that from relationships you saw around you? Was it your parents? Like, how, like how did you get that information? I mean, again, I think I probably got it from TV, from watching families on TV. But I think also, you know, our, I was coming out of an incredibly patriarchal family structure and culture. And so you needed you needed the vote of confidence from the man, right? You needed mm. the man to really back up your plans. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, my career in this story is like taking the lead and he's just sort of a supporting character. It's yeah. very peculiar. Well, and I, I just, I was thinking about something similar, which is so there's like this element in, in the piece where you're saying, I, I apply for this job. I am up against a man mm. who's from a fancy school. Mm-hmm. I wait as this female lead character. I get the job. I call my family and my best friends. Mm. Like I have this support structure. Yeah. And I'm so excited to share it with them. And then I call them and tell them the not so good news that we have to move soon. Mm. And it's interesting to me, it's not specified in the story who the we is that's moving. Oh. There's one way to read it in which the whole family and the best friends are all, <laughs> all, all going, people. Uh, and I just, so this idea of the husband being supportive of the friends and family being told and being excited for this person. Uh, and then if I'm not mistaken, she goes into space, she has this great, she achieves glory. And, cool. then she be- and then she becomes a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> she becomes, right. That's what I love. After Back- all of that, in like the present day, works- she's... But I think it's a, cr- it's a creative writing prompt. Right. 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 So this is the teacher. This is her creative story about what she... Is this a made-up... Did the teacher do this, or is this a, a fiction for the teacher? 
I think it's a fiction for the teacher. She is writing a story too. Wait, let's 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 rewind. Let's let's read read back that very beginning. Okay. Where, where the teacher yeah, comes in the, and the says. Phrase, the so she starts it out. It starts out with dialogue. Okay, kids. Which is also funny because like this is what I do as a as a I like. And this, and this wasn't just to be clear. This was something you just sat down and wrote. Without a prompt, like no one, this wasn't written in response to anything. I'm pretty you just sure. Came up I'm, I can't be certain, but you had work to get done. I know, but it's ingenious. <laughs> it's like it's like Wuthering Heights, or it's like the frame. <laughs> the frame is ingenious. <laughs> Amazing comparison. Okay, okay, kids. I have a creative story for you to write. The title is "How I Achieved Glory." I crossed out. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> And wrote, expand from that topic. And then one of the students says, oh, Mrs. Baxter, yes, I answer. Why don't you write a story, too? The student asks. Well, I don't know. I guess I could, I say. I go back to my desk and think, now what could I write about? Well, of course, I knew. So the story that follows is what I wrote. Okay. So I read it as true. Yeah, that's so that's Not that it matters, but how do you read it? <sighs> I mean... Probably in my brain, it seems right that she became an astronaut and then is their teacher. Like I feel like that's what a fifth grader would come up with. But there is a there's a heartbreaking alternative that she is she has always imagined this story, mm. but doesn't have any of those things. The guy from Harvard got the job. The guy from Harvard got the job. She didn't she, have the support of Harvard. She was nope. discriminated against. She looks in her phone to call friends and there's like no numbers. She's just like, a fifth grade teacher She's just a now. fifth grade teacher. And I don't want to think about that and I don't want it to be real. <laughs> and I wish that we never brought it up. So, so I want to know, I thought it was a pretty sophisticated leap to sort of, to, to go into the mind of the teacher, into an adult, in the mind of an adult, I mean, I don't know a lot of fifth grade students who kind of think of their teachers as adults and as re real people and right. imagine their inner lives and their pasts. Maybe that's what fifth graders do. But like I, I there were college professors I had who I, you know, didn't only later realize, oh, that was a real person. Yeah, totally. <laughs> they must totally. have thought I was an idiot. In fifth grade, I was just trying to decide which twin to date. Uh, yeah. Todd Grignon or Troy yeah. Grignon. Yeah. So did you think, did, do you remember imagining your teachers and sort of speculating about their inner lives or thinking of what stories they must have had in their past? Or did, did this just kind of come? I mean, I think she was, she was young. She was really personable. She kind of talked to us like we were buddies. But I remember feeling more comfortable with her and like she was a more real person. Um, and I probably said stuff to her, like, why don't you do what we're doing, you know? Um, so maybe that's why I could imagine, yeah. Yeah, I think the student who asks her is so sweet. Like, you know, how, ni how nice of the student to think of me, <laughs> my story. Um, I, I love when uh, people are using writing as a learning process or as not just like escapism, but as a tool to grow. And I, I'm wondering how much, so you're writing about applying for the job, you're right. But I can see, you know, your fifth grade mind is like, this is what adults do. Mm -hmm. And I want to learn how to become an adult. So I'm going to like use fiction to try to make my way through this. Mm -hmm. How much of Night Bitch were you writing um, as a young mom? 
I mean, 100%. It's the exact same thing. So you were writing, you were navigating motherhood through this fiction. 100%. That's... Wow. Yeah, it's like, I feel like I'm in a impossible situation with no solution. So why didn't I write a novel about it? And maybe the novel will show me how to get through it. Yeah. And did it? I think so. I mean, you... You're here. You're here. <laughs> I think so. I mean, the writing it is the getting through it. Right, exactly. The writing it becomes the solution. I've, I've wondered for a long time, Rachel, how aware of, of it were you while writing? Like, as Lauren said, you're, you have a book that is sort of giving you this space to work through this experience. Did you sit down one day and say, I, I feel overwhelmed, as you were saying, I, I feel, I think the words you just used were an impossible situation. Mm. Did you wake up and go, I got, I got to write a book about this? Or did you just start, did you just start writing? Did you know what it was going to be? I mean, especially coming from where we started this conversation about moving towards nonfiction and having this sort of um, background of people talking about a lot of your work being autofiction. Mm. Did this feel like something you were cognizant of, this move you were making creatively? I Well, I hadn't written for two years after I had my son, and uh, it wasn't a good space I was in. And I think even my husband was like, you need, the solution to this is you need to write. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I sat down to write, there was not a lot of intention. It was just, I feel a lot of things, and maybe this is just a joke, but I'm just gonna write about this woman who's turning into a dog. Um, and I don't think it was until the very end of the book, like until I literally wrote the last paragraph, I was sitting in the First Avenue Java house, I wrote the last paragraph and I'm like, uh, like I felt this, this like magic swirl and it was like, oh, you write the book to become the person who's capable of writing the book. Mm. Wow. And... I was like, that's the work. Like, it felt like the work was done. Like, the work of it. I became the person who could write the book. And that's what I was going. I didn't know I, that's what was happening until I was done. I love that. That's an amazing description of what it means to write a book. Yeah. yeah. And the First Avenue Java House. Yeah. Remember what, like, what booth? Were you, like, in a chair? I was in a high top. Oh, yeah. The windows. Was Marvin Bell there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. It's he good was to know always people there. right in that Java house. Yeah. I, yeah. It's One, a great hideout. It, it is, is a great hideout. And those high top chairs are great. Um, yeah. uh, One follow-up to that, Rachel, is did you recognize, you know, as you get to that end and you say, I'm, I'm the, now I'm the person who can sort of write that book, um, when you go back and read it now uh, or when you read from it or I know we'll maybe talk about this film adaptation, mm. Um, do you see things differently that you weren't aware of while you were writing it? I'm impressed, knowing you around that time, we were working together, <laughs> I'm always impressed when someone doesn't self-edit. I mean, I could imagine somebody starting a project like this and then saying, this is amazing, and also someone saying, I, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, for sure. moved through it. And so as you look back now, are you seeing things that you weren't even aware you were doing in the work? Um, I mean, the person who wrote it feels very far away from me. 
and like I'm not the narrator feels like a discovery you know every time I I read especially in the middle and the end um it's really it's actually really hard for me uh to read it now because it's it, it, it's like so honest and open and earnest and um, she's really lost and seeking. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, part of me now feels overexposed. Uh, part of me feels that's not me, so there's no overexpo you know, like, um, I still have pretty ambivalent, conflicted feelings about it. Yeah. What were you like at that age? I mean, were you, where <laughs> did you do your writing? I'm just trying to get a picture of, what like, age? you when know, I wrote where the you're, book. you're in, well, no, I'm sorry. Oh, where, this one. Um, Glory. Yeah, you were, you said you were in fifth grade. Yeah. Did you, did you tend to do your writing at home? Or yes. in school? Where at home? We're, we're like in a room? Were I was you... probably in my bedroom in the basement. Like what was the setup? Like were you at a desk? Did you lay in bed and write? Did you sit on the... Do you remember? I don't remember. I mean, yeah. this seems like it had to have been written at a table. Okay. So it was either at the table. I mean, maybe I wrote it at school. Um, I just... I mean, when I think about writing at home, like looking at this typewritten page, that would have been done in the summer on the living room floor on my dad's desk, this huge typewriter, and I was like banging it out. Um, yeah, but I think a lot of it, you know, like my brother was off at college, my sister was in high school, so I just had a lot of alone time in my room, mm -hmm. and I would like read an entire book in a day, or I would just, oh yeah, I was probably sitting on the floor against this pillow up against my bed and like wrote it on my, yeah. On my lap, like on my knees. Okay. Yeah. And do you remember, like, what other kinds of things were you into at that age besides space? Like, did you, <laughs> were, you, were you really one of these kids who just was all reading and writing? Were you kind of an indoor kid? Did I was a very much an outdoor kid. I mean, we lived at the, okay. the dead end of a dirt road in a Mennonite commune on 12 acres of land. Okay. Wooded. So I was just... I would just like go out into the woods and be there for seven hours until my mom blew a horn and then I'd come home. And what kind of, what was kind of space was that for you, the woods? Was it a place where you were like running and doing physical things or was it an imaginative sort of? Program? It was imaginative. Like what kinds of things would you um, think about when you I were I spent there? a lot of time by the creek um, and just sort of looking at all the things in the creek and picking up the wet leaves and... Um, I remember there was this one place where there was a little waterfall and really s smooth stone that, it, and there were all these tiny fossils in the stone. So that was really magical place for me. Um, and I think I just really liked, I liked walking through the woods and like knowing the land, mm -hmm. like coming into relationship with the space and feeling like it was a place where I belonged and knowing the way in and knowing the way out and knowing the landmarks, like the trees and the fallen lot, like all of that stuff, it felt like I owned it, like it was my world. You well, that, know? I mean, and yeah. that happens in Night Bitch too, where, you know, yeah. you, the character as a dog has such a interesting sensory relationship with the neighborhood yeah. that, that the character as a human doesn't. And 
I, I, I feel like that's carrying through from your adventures. It is. I never thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I think like spatial intelligence was really important to me. Like I like to know where I was mm -hmm. in relationship to everything. Um, like my son loves to draw maps. And I'm like, I get it, buddy. Like, yeah. I love a map. Um, yeah, and I mean, like in the story, my friends were really important. My family was really important. Um, I mean, I was in this commune, right? So that community was just like everything. Like my friends there. I was always in other people's houses with other parents, with other kids. Um, and that was really, that was like the center, the heart of our lives. Um, and there was like nothing really more important than that. Did you feel, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, it's a, such a stark difference from the experience that yeah. the mother has of, of almost complete isolation. Right. Yes. Um, that, I mean, we could go on forever about, you know, my belief that we should all be in communes. Same. <laughs> you know, but uh, that's for another podcast. But yeah, it, all, like when you describe it, I'm. it's basically the opposite of, yeah. of what this woman was going through in the book. I was going to ask you, do you, yeah, I mean, in that commune, do, do you feel like there was a lot of support for you in your reading and your writing, or was it something you felt was maybe, you know, you had to kind of keep to yourself? Like, did you feel really comfortable doing it? Like, oh, you were encouraged, or did you? So encouraged. Yeah, okay. So comfortable. And okay. isn't it such a gift when you're a kid to have adults who are interested yeah, in yeah. what you're doing and ask you questions and take you seriously? want to know your opinion, want to know your thoughts, like that is such a gift. And I think I was really encouraged by just having adults around me who asked me questions and wanted to know what I thought about a movie or a song, you know, like mm -hmm. that was incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, one other thing, Rachel, I'm always curious about, uh, you've worked with young writers. Yeah. Uh, you've worked with the Iowa Youth Writing Project. You've worked for the Iowa Young Writers Studio. What advice, given all the things you've been through and what you've, you know, the successes, the things that, that you've struggled through, um, the highs and lows, what advice would you give um, to uh, a sort of younger version of yourself? If you could go back and talk to that person, uh, what advice would you give? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, Danny. That's an impossible question. That's why it's question number seven. <laughs> it's the last of the questions. Find a husband. No, a <laughs> I think that when you are even eight, especially when you're eight or nine years old, you know exactly who you are. And I think it gets muddied the older you get, or it can get muddied. Probably even in high school, to a certain extent, you know exactly who you are. And I think that, I think that is what I would say. Like, you know who you are. You know what you want. So do that. Like, you know already. Trust yourself. Because um, I think I spent so many years and decades, you know, not being sure. And what will, what will this person think? What will my parents think? Well, da, 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 da. And one of the biggest gifts my dad gave me, you know, when I was like living in Arizona, I had dropped out of college, out of Georgetown, all my friends had graduated and had gone on to be like investment bakers and lawyers and doctors. And I was feeling really low. And my dad's like, 
you're on a different path mm -hmm. and that's okay. And I was like, oh, thank you for what saying that. Yeah. What a dad. And I just, I think there's so many shoulds in our lives mm -hmm. and that's not what you should listen to, should listen to. Um, yeah, like you know, you know what you want. So go there, do that, yeah. That's a great answer. <laughs> but I'm curious too though, like if you, the girl who wrote this story thought she wanted to be an astronaut. So like, how do you, how do you reconcile the fact that who people are or what they want, you know, they can sort of change over time. Yeah, but you're not an astronaut it's, today. You're not, it's not always totally clear, like, you may know yourself, but do you, you may not know that you know yourself, or you may be, like, I feel like you, you want to know yourself. Maybe you do know yourself to some degree, but, like, everything isn't set yet. So, yeah. So is it, I mean, so how would you respond to that? I mean, that's, that's the work of, I mean, for me, that's the work of being a writer. That's, like, the lifelong work, right? And now I structure my classes for college students with this overarching theme of your job in this class is to define your aesthetic philosophy. Like, that's the work of what we're doing here. And that's constantly what I see myself doing as a writer, right? Is like, what do I like? What do I want to make? Um, I think, you know, who am I? Like, what is the self? Uh, and just going deeper and deeper into those questions and seeing the answers like change over time. That's what I think is so interesting about writing, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's, I think one of the questions I was asking earlier is about sort of the permission you gave yourself to write this book. And I don't wanna get all weepy and emotional, but I will say it's, it's been very inspiring mm. to know you in the ways that I know you and to see that this was the book that you put out into the world a vulnerable book, a vulnerable book, a book that was showing, as you said, a, a part of yourself that even now uh, you might be uncomfortable mm -hmm. with sharing. But it's a book that connected to an audience. It's a book that took a risk. Um, and I just want you to know from readers and from writers how important that is because I think it shows us you picked up Jesus' son and you went, oh my gosh, look at all the possibilities. Mm -hmm. I read that book and I thought, oh, I don't have to self-edit or think about what the audience is going to be. I can create the work, and then the next thing I do can be different. It, we mm -hmm. don't have to formulate the structure as yeah. writers towards the, the quote-unquote marketplace or towards this idea of we have to be this one thing forever. Mm -hmm. You have multiple MFAs. You write in multiple genres. You do essays, fiction, novels, and that has been really inspiring mm -hmm. to me as a, as a as a friend, but also as a, as a writer. So I just want to thank you for all the work. Oh, Danny, that's so kind. Thanks. Yeah, it, it really was one of those like huge mystery books, which like even my editor and Doubleday, they're like, we don't know. I mean, you know, like we don't know where to put this. We don't quite know what to do with this. I had no idea. Uh, it just felt like, I don't, here we go. And I, I didn't know if no one would read it. I didn't know if a lot of, you know, like it was just like, this is the work and then it's going to be what it's going to be out in the public. My feeling from this book is that before it even hit the public, before it hit the bookshelves, it had already done its job, which was keep you sane mm. and get you through the rough period of early motherhood. And so, like, I love the idea that 
we're writing, but who are we writing to save ourselves? Are we writing as part of survival? Or are we writing for an audience? And I, I think it's always a little mix of both, but I love finding work. And this, this book like sings to me in that, in that way that, that it was a survival technique, you know, like that this was a way to continue to live. And then, and maybe the outside audience wasn't necessarily the main point when you were in it. So I love that. I mean, I think of it as a tool, too, mm -hmm. for you. Lauren, when you were a young mom, were you writing poetry? Because I do remember, I, I know that you have poems about being yeah, I was a mom writing. that are really amazing. But were you doing the same thing, do you think? Yeah, or absolutely. something similar? Okay. I mean, I was, I was writing tiny pages each night, and then I went back and found the poems in those pages en enough for the first book. But I remember finding pages where... All I wrote was the word angry over and over and over. Wow. Angry, 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 angry. <laughs> and then, you know, the next page would be like a poem. Yeah. But um, having that, I mean, I didn't know how to get through what I was feeling. I remember writing just, just the feeling. I was driving to the grocery store and I felt like I had an animal inside of me. Mm. Like a very angry, vicious animal inside of me because I don't know I it's hard to explain when you haven't mommed but yeah. like <laughs> it's hard to understand when you uh, yeah I mean it, yeah, you're just you're you're part animal at all times but you're also you know there's a feeling of being trapped there's a feeling of being you know tethered tethered yeah you can't imagine the, the future yeah. I mean yeah that is a more animal state right you're just in the moment yep trying to get from one moment to the next. You're covered in like all sorts of fluids. Like, is it throw up? Is it pee? I mean, is it yes. sweat? And it's just like a matter of keeping your baby alive. Oh yeah, you just gotta keep them alive. I mean, alive. The, the basic like biological urges are just there. Mm -hmm. So they take over everything, yeah. The men are all off at work taking naps or going to Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> Buffalo enjoying, Wild Wings. Enjoying a little me time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if we want to go there, but that's a whole other thing that I would love to discuss at some point. Is just you know, I mean, the thing about reading Night Bitch and the thing about sort of hearing you read has has made me sort of think about like, well, you know, what is the state of women and mothers sort of in the culture, and like, is is, is this sustainable for like for women, and like, what has to happen? It seems like something has not happened that needs to happen, and so the question is. Like what needs to happen, or what would you say to a? Let's say there's a, a a young woman or a girl who's a writer, but maybe is also thinking about having kids one day, and is now mm -hmm. thinking, you know, oh my God, it seems so much more complicated and difficult, and fraught with uh, complexity than I ever imagined. I mean, because I've... the illusion is that it's you know, well, it's a little hard, but you know, people yeah. have for years. So like, what would you, what do you say to that I'm, kid? I mourned my life as a writer, I thought it was over. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's sort of the signals I got from society was you had a baby, you're a mom. That's all you are. That's all you are yeah. and everything else is done. And so I remember being like, this is, it's over. It was a good run, but <laughs> I guess now here I am, you know, and, yeah. but it, but I couldn't stop writing. And that I, I imagine you were the same. Yeah, I mean, well, I lost the desire. I mean, my brain just went full baby mush, and 
I didn't even want to write. I just wanted to like hold my baby and stare at his face and feel oxytocin. So in terms of, you know, how to change this, I have gotten the feedback from some older women who are like, oh, it's kind of depressing to read your book because this is where we were like 40 years ago. And it seems like nothing's progressed. And I mean, hundreds of women have written me and been like, this is my story. And I kind of feel sad every time I get that note. I mean, I'm glad it connected with them. But I think what's become fairly evident is that societal change begins in the domestic space and begins at home. And, you know, there are a lot of kind of tools out there for navigating this, but it it really begins in um, spouses discussing roles and discussing the division of labor and treating domestic labor as labor. I have a lot of hope for, I feel like the Zoomers get this. I have a lot of hope for the future. And I feel like uh, you know, as a Gen Xer, maybe I'm kind of in a, you know, a transitional sort of era. But there are more people, there is kind of a movement now among women and mothers to talk about domestic labor, to talk about division of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once that relationship, especially that hetero relationship changes in domestic spaces, that's, after that is when we can get like, the Equal Rights Amendment or, you know, like, um, I think that's when, as a society, we'll start to change. But, I mean, there, I, it's still very traditional in domestic spaces. It's just, it's, it's wild. Yeah. I think fifth grade you kind of knew secretly that she did. had to happen. Yeah, I mean, I watched my parents' <laughs> marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask kind of a broad question that gets back to sort of just your own work, you know, very successful novel. Are you writing now? What's What are you working on? And can you talk a little bit about this movie project or at least oh, sure. talk about what, what that's been like? Yeah. Um, I'll start with that. So I uh, there is a, a film. I think it's coming out this year. <laughs> and I, I did adapt my novel into a script during the pandemic. It was a horrible experience. I mean, it was horrible in a lot of ways, but also wonderful in a lot of ways. Can you tell us what was difficult about it? Oh my gosh. So, you know, I had just, I had finished editing the book. I had finished, you know, all these passes. I'm like, I'm done with the book. Mm. And then it sells. And then immediately, you know, like a month or a couple weeks after, then there's movie talk. So as we're like negotiating the movie contract, I'm going through all my edits, you know, with the editor edits at Nightbitch, Nightbitch, read, I like get to the end. You can barely read the book one more. It's just like right. excruciating to, to keep looking at it. And then they're like, okay, now you need to adapt it. And now it's a pandemic. <laughs> and now your child isn't in school. And I had a night, another Nightwish bo- moment where I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do this because my kid's home. Could you have had someone else write the screenplay or was that something oh, they you wanted? Oh, they did not want me to write it at all. Oh, really? But you No, wanted. I had to advocate for that because I wanted, I wanted to kind of break in. Like I, before I ever thought about getting an MFA, I thought, well, I'll go to film school and I'll be a screenwriter. But I just didn't 
quite have like the resources and the wherewithal to do that. And so I went and got an MFA. Um, so it was something I was really interested in. I worked, I mean, I kind of had a mental breakdown doing it. Um, bless my husband who just, he just let me be how I needed to be. So I went through this process. I wrote the script. I think they were really surprised that it was actually a script, you know, because I was like an unproven screenwriter. They're like, oh, you, yeah. you can write a screenplay. But as soon as the director came on, I mean, she's a writer-director. And, she, you know, a writer-director is going to have their own vision and have their way they want it. So I wrote it. I got paid for it. And then they're like, great, we have this director, and she has a different vision. I'm like, that is totally fine. Like, she ha take it, have it. I'm glad I went through the process of writing it um, and that I have that under my belt and can use that, you know, to move forward in other projects. But um, Mari took over the project. She wrote a beautiful script. And that was the script that we used to make the movie. And do you think she drew on your script at all? Or did she just kind of not want to I think there might be some echoes. But my script was pretty, pretty absurd and sort of bonkers. And hers is much more measured and about, you know, a marriage. Uh, I mean, it's still real weird, but um, yeah. And, and so we actually went out for a few days, my husband and son and I, and we were on set, oh, cool. which was incredibly surreal, right? To, to have these scenes that you wrote that are kind of based on your real life and then to have to watch them acted out in front of you it it was it was a very intense experience Did you build like a whole replica of Hy-Vee in oh Los Angeles <laughs> I mean they had they had these twins playing the child and they were wearing the same clothes from Target that like my son would wear oh. I'm doing like sitting on the curb watching the trash truck you know the garbage truck and I was just like I don't know what to do with this this is like a lot it was a lot, but um, yeah, it, it's it's been a really beautiful experience, and I think things have gotten delayed because of you know the writer's strike and the actor strike. So, I think I think it's going to come out later this year, That's which so is exciting. exciting. Yeah, God. and you asked me another question too. What are you working on now? What am I working on? So I had before Night Bitch was ever a thing. I was going to publish a book of short stories with a little press called Curbside Press, um, but right before, I mean. Right before the book was going to get published, we went through all the editing, everything, the press went under, um, which I'm actually really grateful for now because that collection was sort of a pieced together collection that wasn't really a collection of a lot of stuff I'd written in grad school. I was going to say, are these, because I wanted to ask you about this too, are these those lyric, they're sort of, what I remember you reading, these really beautiful No, that's just essay. in a drawer. Because that was a whole other period of your, I mean, those were beautiful pieces, oh, too. thanks. Yeah, yeah. those are just, I don't know, those okay. might just be in a drawer forever. No. Okay. I really wanted that book to be published, but that made the rounds and everyone, no one would publish it, which is fine. Um, anyway, so I have this collection, goes under, I have like, this is me in those two years kind of of not writing, and I'm like, well, I'm going to have a collection, and then it like doesn't come through, and then my... Mm. My agent at the time is like, well, you need to turn this into a novel. And I'm like, there's no way I'm turning this into a novel. So I just was really discouraged and disheartened and like, maybe I'm not, just, maybe I'm not a writer. Maybe I'm just a mom now. So anyway, 
that collection is really important to me because it's like my coming of age book. You know how everyone has their coming of age book. Um, and so now I'm, I've revamped that and it's almost done. And there are new stories. Um, it's a collection that spans 40 years uh, in, a, in a woman's life. It's auto-fictional. It's more about, I guess, being Mennonite, you know, growing up Mennonite and then going out in the world and what that looks like. So that's been an interesting project because it's, it's very old. And then I'm, how do, how do you um, come to it as a changed person? Mm-hmm. What stories still work and what stories are just not at all? <laughs> you know, like they're, they're not telling the stories you believe anymore. And then how, it's been really interesting too to write new stories and to see what kind of writer I am now with the, I'm so different. I'm like, who is this person who's writing short stories? So um, that's been really fun. That's what I'm finishing up now. And there's, there's other stuff too, but that's, that's, that's exciting. What I'm I in mean, the middle the collection of. is exciting. I think short stories are really hard. Yeah. They are. Yeah. They have to be perfect, right? They're like, they're like a watch. Like every, yeah. every little cog has to fit together and a novel can be like big yes. and sloppy and you know, I'm, it's, I was never able to write a short story. They're so I hard. tried so hard. <laughs> they have to like turn at the end. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm just so encouraged by people who run into these, pl- they hit these places where they feel discouraged and worn out and like they're not a writer and like they don't have it anymore. And then they just sort of persist through whatever it takes, right? It could be like years. Mm-hmm. And and then they just, they, they, they keep writing and... and you know, because I definitely feel that at times too, and so it's really it's exciting to feel like you. Know, it's not just am I just a mom? It's like am I just an old person now? Am I yeah. done? Or I'm like no, I no. This that. is like the best. Yeah. I mean, as my husband says, like the great thing about being a writer is like unlike musicians or other you know disciplines, like you get better as you yeah. get older, and your writing gets better. And that's actually you know I say that's something I said to my students this past fall is I was like, if you want to be a writer, you just don't stop writing. I published my first book like when I was 40 or 41. Yeah. And that feels correct to me. Like that's the time I should have published it. Um, yeah, I was 42. So I feel like yeah. I admire your it's persistence. A great, it's it a takes great a time lot, to it publish It is, a and book it takes a lot of persistence, you yeah. know, to not be discouraged. And, yeah. I mean, it's also a practice I've found, realized in the past few years that is part of my mental health regimen. So in the same way that I'm taking my antidepressants and fish oil <laughs> and using my like happy light, I'm also writing. And it, that was a weird shift too because I came to this town into probably like you did where I was like, I'm gonna be a great writer. <laughs> like it's right around the corner and very focused on accolades, very focused mm-hmm. on awards, very focused on these things. And um, it's amazing to watch that switch where I realized it has nothing to do with those things. And when you get those things, doesn't make anything better. No. When uh, you publish a book, it doesn't make anything better. Nothing changes. Yeah. I don't have a butler now. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't have a I think horse. That's, that's interesting, though, because I was the same way. Yeah. I think I came here. And r- r- what writing was to me in my 20s and 30s and even 40s is something really different than it is now. But it's been a weird transition where... Yeah. It's gone from sort of wanting something from the outside world, mm-hmm. which you still kind of want, but but now it's really just something that's so integral to your sort of well-being, and you're doing it for very different reasons, and yeah. it's good to hear someone else say that. Well, and it's interesting to hear 
Rachel, at the very beginning of this, you talked about having work to do. When you when you were a young writer, you, you had work you had to get done. <laughs> you talked about your son feeling the same. Yeah. Uh, and you also brought up this point that at some point your husband had said after after the birth of your child, like, it, the, one of the, the things here is you've got to be writing. Yeah. And Lauren, now you're saying... I'm realizing as part of my mental health, I just need to get it out in removing, again, the marketplace or, or oh, the accolades sure. and recognizing that the art is what matters. And it's been meaningful to you since you were a kid. That, to, yeah. to me, is one of the beauties of what we're doing at this table is seeing how that energy of all these pages mm-hmm. in front of us has sustained. There might have been, again, like moments where it was more, you were producing more or less or you know, struggles we all face, but you kept doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And I think that's that's such a treasure, right, to have this practice that and I think I agree too, you know, like I don't typically at this point I don't write for an audience. I write for myself. I I write and and the way I judge if it's good is if it's exciting to me or interesting or doing something doing something new. Like that's my gauge. If I thought about an audience, I probably would never write again. It's I think it's paralyzing. And it's such a treasure to have have that sense of self and that and that confidence, right? To be like I I have an aesthetic philosophy. I have a point of view and I'm trying to achieve that. I'm making art. I'm trying to achieve this perfect thing that is fuzzy in my mind and I'm always working toward that. And I think this is my theory I've been floating lately, but I think it's a spiritual practice. I think writers are secular clergy. I think we're all engaged in this life practice that involves like contemplation, a return ritual, a return to the desk every day a community of people who are all, who all share the same concerns of, you know, trying to perfect something, trying to reach something that's true. I mean, what a beautiful way to live your life. And I think I learned a lot about this from the way my parents religiously live their lives, right? They showed me how to practice, how to have some sort of philosophy that guides your days and guides, you know, everything you're doing. And I thank them for that. Like my life doesn't look exactly like theirs, but I think on a very fundamental level, I'm continuing the work that they, that they wanted to do in their lives. Rachel, that was so beautifully said. I'm going to, I need to listen to that every time I sit down to write. <laughs> Writers <laughs> are secular clergy. That was beautiful. I think that's a great place to end it, too. Yeah. That was just uh, magical. So, Rachel Yoder, thanks so much for joining us on Sad Me of the Past. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. I love talking to all of you. We should do it more off mic, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Support for this podcast comes from the University of Iowa, the Maggot Center for Writing, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the Graduate College. We'd like to thank the Center for Language and Culture Learning for use of their podcast studio. Sad Me of the Past is part of the Writing University Podcast Network at the University of Iowa. This network includes podcasts from creative writing programs and departments all across our campus. Visit writinguniversity.org forward slash podcasts to see our full list of offerings, including Writing Matters, The 11th Hour, 
Origins, The Short Coat, and more.